I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So Happy New Year. We're back in the studio for the first time after the Christmas New Year break. But of course, last week we had our special deep dive history session inside the room, the coalition talks and We've had really good feedback. Loads of people have clearly enjoyed listening to it and lots of people suggesting different historical moments which we could deep dive into over the course of the year. Yeah, I think what people liked was not just the history but the fact that it might have some relevance to the future because we might have coalition talks in 2024. Who knows? And I think as part of our New Year resolutions, normally in the New Year's resolution, you're going to do less. You're going to eat less. You're going to smoke less and so on. But we are going to do more. We're going to take a Boris Johnson approach. We're doing moreism. So we're going to have... Hang on a sec. That might put people off. (laughs) All right. We're not taking a Boris Johnson approach. We're, We're going to be focused on accuracy and the truth. And we're going to look at inside the room again, with some other historical events that we've been connected with. And we're also going to try and answer more of your questions because we get deluged with some really great questions and the format of the show has not really allowed us to answer as many as we'd like. So that is our New Year's resolution. More answers. Definitely. We should also, by the way, say a huge thanks to Danny Alexander, our first guest in the studio, because he also, by bringing that Liberal Democrat perspective, really made the programme come alive. But what we've decided to do to give more time for questions is to have two bites of the political currency cherry every week. We're going to do our normal podcast on Thursday and then a special questions edition on Monday. Uh, And it's going to be called EMQs, not PMQs, EMQs, ex-ministers questions. And we're going to... um, Get that I, to get, I see what you're doing there. Do you it's see, very clever. But it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't my idea, actually. <laughs> it wasn't it was, my idea, right? Whose idea was it? Is <laughs> it a good idea? It's a classic. Classic ministers wasn't, wasn't our idea. Oh, goodness knows how. I mean, and talking about things where ministers say, what was going on? It's all news to me. We're going to have to discuss today, first of all, because it's been so dominant all week, the huge post office scandal, the biggest miscarriage of justice ever, as people have been saying all week, following that amazing... ITV television programme, which exposed all those false prosecutions of the uh, post office business owners as a result of the failure of the computer system. So we're going to talk about that first. 
And then we're going to come on to the political New Year, uh, which actually has been dominated by the post office scandal, even though it was happening over a 20-year period. But we're going to talk about how the two political leaders most likely to be in Downing Street, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, have started their new political year. What's the date going to be for the general election? Do you know? I have a bit of an inkling, so I will, I will tell you a bit later. Coming up shortly. Yes. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about uh, something which is going to be more significant than maybe people have kind of clocked. Um, there's clearly huge uh, geopolitical instability in Europe because of the war with Ukraine and in the Middle East, and now spreading to um, those Houthi attacks on the shipping in the Suez Canal. But on Sunday is the elections in Taiwan. And the way that election goes and the way in which the winning candidate responds and the impact upon American-Chinese relations, uh, that could have a big impact. That's even before you start taking into account the possibility of a President Trump stepping into American-Chinese relations over the course of the year. So that's what we're going to talk about third, the Taiwan elections happening this weekend. But first of all, the post office scandal. It's interesting, isn't it? This has been around for, for a long time. The first prosecutions 20 years ago the first revelations of how badly this has been handled 10 years ago. Ed Davey in the firing line now because of decisions he did or didn't take when he was a post office minister a decade ago in the coalition. And yet it's suddenly been dominating the headlines every day this week. And the reason is because sometimes you have a moment, a cultural moment, when in this case, an ITV television programme which dramatises and brings real-life stories into people's living rooms of something which is so shocking and upsetting and it just changes the course of politics. And that's what's happened this week. Yeah, it has. And, you know, it's an absolutely brilliant drama. I've watched uh, all four episodes of Mr Bates versus the Post Office. It's a brilliant piece of television because, you know, trying to make people understand how a kind of computer failure led to the lives of so many of these sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses being ruined is is quite a hard thing to do dramatically. And it's one of the reasons, I think, because it was kind of complicated subject all about computers, that the political system, parliament, the media, I think was quite slow on to it. There were some very honourable exceptions. You know, we should mention MPs like James Arbuthnot, who raised this early on? We should mention publications like Computer Weekly that were private on to, eye. private eye that were on to it. Uh, there was a very good BBC podcast on it. So Kevin Jones, know, the Labour MP, but, it, from the but it was this political drama. It was this drama which is really compelling that kind of certainly brought it to life for me, like for so many other people. And I, of course, you know, asked myself the question. I don't think anyone who's been in government at any point in the last twenty years doesn't at the moment, ask themselves this question, how on earth did I not know this was happening? You know, how, I was the chance exchequer for six of these years over which this scandal was taking place. And, you know, I've really wrapped my brains and I cannot think of a single conversation I had about it or a single piece of paper that I saw about it. I didn't have a constituency case which might have brought it more to my attention. And I think it has asked, certainly I've been asking myself really some quite sort of deep questions about, right, you know, is the system basically somehow set up in the wrong way that these arms length bodies, these the way over the last few decades we've we've pushed off different agencies from the sort of centre of government 
of which the post office is an example because it was wholly owned by the government and it was the government that decided to introduce this new computer system, the Horizon system. And yet over you know, conservative Labour and coalition governments, the scandal then unfolded and, and ministers seemed completely unaware, including, as you just pointed out, the current leader of the Liberal Democrats and the post office minister himself in, in the government I was part of, Ed Davey, who, who said this when challenged on what he knew. Well, I wish I knew then what I know now, what we all know now, that this was a conspiracy on a huge scale with the post office lying to the victims, to judges, to ministers of all political parties over decades. There is a public inquiry now, which has been underway for some time. It's interesting that this breaks into the news, but the public inquiry is already happening. So in some sense, it was on the government's agenda, but it's not been on the public agenda quite like it is now. And it's provoked the response from the Prime Minister and Prime Minister's questions with emergency legislation to reverse all of those false convictions. And we'll find out the nature of the, the conspiracy, what really went wrong. But you are right, there's something about the post office as a body which was hierarchical, was closed, and also had its own prosecutorial powers. So it wasn't needing to call in the police in the large majority of cases, not needing public prosecutors. It had those powers itself. And it seems to have been impervious to pressure from individual members of parliament and seemingly managed to prevent ministers in the civil service from really knowing what was going on. Well, I think it's also one of those classic things of, A, trusting the computer, that the computer must always be right and human beings must always be wrong. And there had been fraud. You know, the computer was originally introduced in 1999 because... Remember, these post office branches are handling pensions and the cash is you know, crossing the counter. And so the computer had been introduced to try and eliminate fraud. So once they'd introduced it, just no one believed the computer could tell a lie. And then you also, as you say, you know, as you often have with some of these sort of great arms of the state and, and the kind of body politic, like the Church of England or like uh, the BBC or certain government departments or the army or the police. You know, there have been these scandals where things happen and no one calls it out and no one shines a light on something that's going on. And, you know, the post office is one of the great, much-loved institutions of the UK. And yet, certainly if the drama is anything to go by, you know, some pretty shocking behaviour is happening inside the post office where they are hounding, in some cases, literally to death these good citizens who are running their branches. And there was an interesting thing about how in the entire history of the Royal Mail since the 19th century, they'd never really liked these sub-postmasters. They were always in a kind of, they were detached from the main institution. They'd been brought in reluctantly in the Victorian era as the mail had expanded with the railways and so on. So anyway, it's very, very, you know, it's a kind of interesting cultural problem. But of course, at the heart of it is this absolute human tragedy of people's lives ruined, you know, hearing their stories the real individuals behind the drama on the radio over the last few weeks, you know, has really, you know, I'm not always the most reflective person. I kind of think in government, you have to make difficult decisions and often things you do aren't very popular, but someone's got to make. But I have really thought hard, like, how was I in government while part of this was happening and didn't know? And, and I want some answers myself, for myself. It's interesting, the, the role of the individual members of parliament, because um, people don't always understand what a local MP does. And, you know, they campaign on issues and they represent um, groups. But one of the things you can do as a member of parliament 
when the system has failed, when there's been something gone wrong, whether it's with public sector agency or a private company, you can step in and try and make the system work better for that individual. But of course, you know, you have lots and lots of people come to your surgeries and you don't know the facts and you don't know whether or not the story they're telling you is the right story. But sometimes you get a sense that, that something's gone wrong. And in my experience, being a member of parliament, sometimes you dealt with organisations who are very happy to be quite open and tell you the facts and have a conversation with you and meet the constituent. Sometimes there was an ombudsman you could go to to get them to independently investigate. But there were times when you dealt with agencies where it was just a brick wall. I mean, I had a particular case with the Police Complaints Commission and I just couldn't get them to ever be properly open with me. And when you would then go to a minister, I talked to the, the Home Secretary and to the Policing Minister, and they would kind of face this brick wall as well. But of course, they could just say, well, look, this is being handled independently of us. Every now and then, you just met this resistance. And it feels as though the post office was one of these, these examples where individual campaigning MPs were just coming up against a brick wall of pushing away and denial and a lack of accountability. And maybe that's the thing which will change as a result of the public inquiry. You know, I was, I mean, I, I loved being a local MP in Cheshire, but I was always a bit sceptical of the kind of constituency role per se, because you, on the one hand, were either just sort of, we want the local MP along as we're going to open this railway station or open this, you know, new shopping centre or whatever, or your job was to help essentially, you know, people who had got the wherewithal to go and visit their local MP get a bit further ahead in the queue to have their hospital operation dealt with or their complaint about their pension sorted or whatever. You know, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. And often you could, you know, really make a big impact on people's lives. But, I, you know, I, I was always a bit dubious about, like, what its value was. And I have to say, you know, I have, again, kind of thought quite hard over the last couple of weeks because it's clear that the role of the local MP in, in bringing this scandal to an end is critical. You know, James Arbuthnot, who I know really well, is, uh, you know, he, I worked very closely with him over many years, particularly when I was sort of young in politics. And he's, a, he's actually portrayed very well in the drama. He is a kind of rather dry, old Etonian sort of classic Tory MP. But he, in fact, you know, is also very smart. And he was absolutely on to there's something wrong. And it was because something in his – in fact, he had a couple of cases in his constituency. And I think I would have benefited enormously, if that's the right way to put it, from having one of these cases happen in my constituency because it would have alerted me. It would have been a kind of flashing amber light, which you would not have got if you're sitting at the top of the government and you're, you know, there's layers and layers of the civil service, let alone then the arm's length bodies like the post office below you. You know, I, even a prime minister sits down in their local – constituency library or community centre and is faced with real members of the public affected by their government's policies or the policies of some state agency. And so, you know, I think it's been a massive boost for those who've campaigned long to keep Britain's parliamentary system, its representative government and so on. I wonder how it will change things, though. I mean, clearly it's going to change things for lots of people who've been fighting very hard for, for justice and for compensation. Will it mean that there's more caution about big computer systems coming in to solve public sector efficiency problems. I think if I was a minister in my department and I was looking at an issue where MPs were complaining and there was an apparent injustice, 
I think I would learn from the Ed Davey example and want to get on the case. There is no doubt that the next time a Mr Bates comes knocking at a junior minister's door, they're going to get the appointment that they didn't get uh, in 2010. And the truth is it makes you unpopular. I mean, I remember in in my times as a minister, there were certain moments where um, you were faced with an, an issue. I had one around terrorist financing and the apparent claiming of a welfare benefit somebody wasn't entitled to, another one about seeming charging in faith schools, where I just decided that to ring the alarm and to make a fuss about something as a minister was the right thing to do. Because if it did become a big scandal, I wanted to be on the case and to have shown I'd, I'd acted. It doesn't always make you popular with um, the prime minister or the chancellor or your boss if you're a junior minister to to kick off about something which is quite disruptive, which hits the newspaper headlines, which yeah, although, may end up costing us money. Although in this case, because, you know, right at the beginning of the coalition government, I don't, I don't think there would have been any opposition to uh, the post office minister saying... I've uncovered a problem. Uh, and I tell you, you know, we should move on. And obviously this story, if that's the right way to describe it, is going to run around because there isn't really a happy ending. I mean, that's, of course, there's resolution in the sense of convictions being reversed and compensation being paid out, but people's lives have been ruined and decades of their lives they're not going to get back. And, you know, it's interesting. I think people's, you know, if, if, if a current set of government ministers think, great, We've announced this law that's going to reverse everything and uh, we're going to hand out some money and that everyone should be grateful. You know, that's not been the reaction and understandably so. But there is a kind of, you know, politics is a pretty cynical business. And there is no doubt that the fact that the post office scandal has very unexpectedly dominated the first couple of weeks of this year, the fact that that has happened has actually distracted attention from the problems the Conservatives have at the beginning of this election year. It gave Rishi Sunak something to say at Primus' questions. Exactly. And it enabled him to look like he was doing things rather than on the receiving end of a political system that is increasingly of the view that he is not going to win and he's not going to be a Prime Minister by the end of the year. And if you were fighting a Tory Lib Dem seat, you'd probably be putting a Davy in your leaflets? Well, I, I think the uh, Tory deputy chairman, Lee Anderson, it's not everyone's cup of tea, I think is the polite way to put it, was uh, doing the Tories' job by um, sticking it to the Liberals. And there's no doubt that Ed Davey is going to uh, have some problems uh, with this in the months ahead. But he is not going to be the Prime Minister by the end of the year. It's either going to be Rishi Sunak or it's going to be Keir Starmer. And we should look at how the first couple of weeks of this year has gone for both of these men. So it's 2024, and we know this is going to be the general election year. Not because it has to be the general election year. You could actually have an election in January 2025. But the Prime Minister chose as his big New Year message to tell us that he was definitely going to have an election this year. My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. Go on then. Do you know what's the date? November the 14th. Save the date. Do you know that? I'm pretty certain that is the date that Downing Street have currently selected. Doesn't mean, of course, they won't be pushed off This is insider intel. Well, a little birdie has told me that the various work programmes required to get ready for a general election have that date singled out. All across Downing Street, listening to this, people will be thinking, who is the little birdie? Who's his source? Do you think you've dropped the minute? These are all my friends, Ed, as you know. Now, anyway, November 14th, by the way, logic leads you there because you're not going to have it in the first half of the year. I mean, the pretense 
that uh, Rishi Sunak could have a May election was something we discussed last year. It was, it's a non-starter. He's tw- more than 20 points behind in the opinion polls. He's not going to have a spring election. So then you're left with the autumn and you're probably thinking, I know, we'll have the party conference as a kind of launch pad. We'll fit in an autumn statement like a mini budget either before that or immediately after it. And that kind of leads you into mid-November. So November the 14th kind of writes itself. But they did make a total mess of the beginning of the year. The idea that Rishi Sunak's first intervention should be about the election date. But the reason why he had to do that was because they had briefed the budget date, an early budget date, March March, the 6th. No, but early in March, which said immediately, ah, March the 6th, tax cuts, beginning of the election campaign, they're going for a May election. So they set up all the speculation, allowed Labour to jump in and say, so it's a May election. And then as a consequence, Sunak then has to clarify, actually, no, it's the second half of the year. Why does he want to box himself in? I mean, if in fact the polls had shifted and he could go early, he should go early. He's now ruled that out. And he's ruled that out because he had to close down Labour speculation about May. I mean, it was a mess. It's a, well, it is a mess. And it's a mess also to be talking about process. The public don't really care when the election is. I mean, you know, of course, those who vote want to know when they have to vote. But, you know, you should be starting your new year talking about the big messages for the country that are relevant to people's lives. And, you know, I thought one of the really surprising things before the post office scandal kind of took over the front pages, was if you notice the very first conservative interview of the new year was actually the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, talking about their success, as they would put it, clearing the backlog of asylum cases. And I was listening at home. I was thinking, why are you going on about immigration and asylum seekers and Rwanda again? That's how we ended last year. And it's a mess. And I'm not saying immigration is not a very important issue. But let's be honest, it's not like the public think that the Conservatives have got a grip on it at the moment. You should be talking about the economy. The first person up on the New Year media round should be the Chancellor of the Exchequer talking about the economy and how the economy is safe under the Tories and improving under the Tories and blah, 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 blah. And it's at risk under a Labour government. And if the only chance they've got of winning this election is to make it, in my view, the economy election and... I was just sort of sitting there baffled going, really? But it was worse than that because it ended up with the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, correcting Downing Street, the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary for misrepresenting progress they'd made on clearing the asylum backlog because they said they'd done it and it turned out to only be the historic backlog up to a certain date and the backlog is in fact kind of higher than when the Prime Minister first made the announcement rather than the other way round. If the spectator is calling you out on the facts, that's not great if you are the Prime Minister. And it's so contrary to the Sunak brand. The brand he wanted was, you know, after all the mess of the past and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, you know, sober, honest, tell it to you straight. And then he gets called out for playing fast and loose with the figures. You know, he should be talking the economy up morning, noon and night. You know, that, to my mind, is the central election strategy. In fact, there are echoes of it. You can hear him using language that's very similar to the language that actually David Cameron and I were using in the run-up to 2015, which is, we've made progress on the economy. Let's not go back to square one. It's, you know, we've got a plan, blah, blah, blah. You know, he knows that interest rates are likely to come down in 2024. He knows he's going to be able to appoint 
to you know gradually improving economic news, although very gradually. That's their central message. I think they've got a problem, and it's a problem that you know is often the case in politics, which is it's a problem born of low expectations about their success. The Conservative Party has started this new year in the view that it's not going to win the election. I mean, that is what most MPs, Conservative MPs, including most members of the Cabinet, really think. And that's because the opinion polls have taken another turn for the worse for the Conservatives. There's now some polls showing a more than 20-point gap with Labour. And we've now got three by-elections coming up some, you know, unavoidable because MPs have been caught up in scandals, others because perfectly reasonable Tory MPs like Chris Skidmore have decided to resign and have not been haven't been able to keep people like him on board. Any attempts at a kind of relaunch this early part of the year is going to be punctuated by probably big by-election defeats. And in that environment, it's not the case that the election is unwinnable. And if you look back to the 92 election, most Conservatives thought they were going to lose that and the opinion poll said that Labour was going to win. And there was one person, John Major, who really, really believed he could win. And I think Sunak has got to exude not tetchiness, not getting caught up on the facts, not, you know, getting diverted off his core message. He just needs to be the guy who says, I really believe I'm the right person to lead this country. I've got the right economic plan. I don't care if you're bored of hearing about it. I'm going to go on telling you about this again and again and again until November the 14th, which is when you're going to have a chance to keep me in or risk a change. But this goes back to um, the strategic challenge that we've talked about before that he has, which is how do you hold the Conservative Party electoral coalition together? The one thing he can actually unite the Conservatives on is if the economy strengthens, don't Mm. let Labour ruin it. Now, One of the things we know from politics is you've always got to read the very, very long articles in the Sunday newspapers, especially by Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times, Mm -hmm. because buried within them, there's often an interesting nugget where somebody wants to get out there, but without it being the top of the news. And Tim Shipman writes, while the earlier than usual budget date was seen by some as an indication of an early election, a senior Tory said it was actually to allow government to fit in a second fiscal event before the summer. That points to a second tax-cutting budget ahead of the start of campaigning in October. So people in Downing Street saying to Tim Shipman, you could have a tax-cutting budget in March and then try and come back and have a second tax-cutting quasi-budget, mini-budget, emergency budget, fiscal event. You mean quasi with a K rather than with a Q? I I didn't mean quasi quoting because, I mean, obviously his (laughs) tax-cutting budget didn't really work. Well, the warning from uh, big investors like BlackRock is we might get another quasi with a K budget. I mean, they're actually worrying about both political parties making so many spending pledges and tax cut pledges uh, that it unbalances Britain's finances. Exactly. And that's the point. So if this was Italy or Greece in historic times, you know, countries which were seen to be less fiscally sound and strong. The idea of setting up two political tax-cutting budgets within months Mm. of each other in March and then before the summer to win the election, that would have been seen as reckless and typical. But for the British government, for a Conservative government, for Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, who wants to be the sound Mm. post-Quarteng Chancellor, to be told by Downing Street, have two tax-cutting budgets within months of themselves. Is that a realistic prospect? Well, I think, you know, the trouble is when you're, you know, the further behind in the polls they get and the 
diminishing weeks between now and the election means that you get increasingly desperate and you look for what in American football they'd call the Hail Mary pass, the single thing that's going to get you out of trouble. In fact, Jeremy Hunt asked us a question in our special Christmas question. Could a single budget win an election? And yeah, they but you are, didn't ask about having two within three months And I think Jeremy Hunt you know, wants to go down as the chancellor who rescued Britain after the disaster of 2022. I don't think he'd like this idea, do you? I don't think he'd like this idea. But there are two things that are circulating at the moment as conservative ideas that could transform the party's fortunes. And the first is a really sustained reduction in income tax. So you cut income tax now and then you cut it you know, you promise you're going to cut it year after year through the next parliament. How do you pay for that? By, you know, imaginary expenditure of savings and welfare savings, whatever. Because at the moment, income tax is going up year on year on because year. Because of the, of the thresholds. Freeze- exactly. Freezing the thresholds. So, you know, but it, that's, that's the first idea. And then the second idea doing the rounds, which is like a, a George Osborne favourite, because it was literally what I announced as Shadow Chancellor, is abolish or radically change non-DOM status which is, after all, a Labour policy now, and use the money, instead of on the things that Labour want to use the money on, to abolish inheritance tax. That was very similar to what I announced, actually, back in 2007, but it's come back as an idea, as the thing, and they think Labour won't know how to respond to it. Labour will inevitably say you can't abolish inheritance tax. They'll they'll fall into the trap of saying, well, only 4% of estates and 4% of dead people pay inheritance tax. But, you know, then Tories know it's a tax that many people fear they're going to pay in the future. It's all about aspiration. So those things are doing the rounds and they're all born of like, what the hell do we do because we're in such a big hole? On this inheritance tax point, you did pledge to abolish inheritance tax, you and David Cameron, in opposition. In the 2010 election, I don't think you mentioned it once. I mean, it wasn't something that you championed. You shied away from it because in the end, when you actually came up and looked at it in the eyes, you concluded that, you know, what would it say about your priorities? Well, I think to be fair, first of all, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling responded to what I had announced by make, you know, again, too technical, allowing husbands and wives to transfer their allowances. So they almost raised the inheritance threshold to a million. They raised it to about... So they didn't say they were going to abolish it. £700,000 for a minute. And we ended up, you know, as Chancellor, I did end up with a policy which exists to this day, that if you've got a family home, you can have up to a million pounds mm. off your inheritance tax bill, which is what I had announced as Shadow Chancellor. So I think, you know, we honoured the spirit of the pledge. There's no doubt it was very politically effective at the time. And I think, you know... Yeah, but that's in 2007. Always, I know. And of course... 2010, when you were way, pledged to abolish it. And also, well, yeah, of course, you know, 2007 was still boom years and house prices have been going up for many years. 2010 was post-global financial crash. In the space of three years, Britain's economic fortunes had changed very dramatically. And in 2024, Britain is not feeling like it's in boom times. Now, I'm not saying inheritance tax is not a potentially very potent tax cut for the Conservatives. And it definitely puts pressure on Labour if they do go for it. And I'd be rather surprised if they didn't do it, frankly, this year. It's it's really circulating. I'd now, be amazed if they did it. OK, well, that's something we can we'll yeah, go for track during the year. But it, I think we, you know, we should now turn to kind of Keir Starmer's sure. problem. Now, I say problem with, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you can't see, but I'm putting up my kind of inverted commas here. If I said to you, what did he say in his New Year message? What would you say he said? Nothing, really. I mean, Starmer, in I'm some, not sure I know either. Do you know the main thing I remember? But in a way, that was his success. You know, the main thing I remember of this holiday period 
is a picture of Starmer in a military uniform on the East European border with Russia, visiting British troops. And he looked like the prime minister. You know, that it was a prime ministerial picture. You know, it doesn't always have to be speeches, the matter. And Starmer's problem, and again, I put this in the inverted commas because it's a great problem to have, is a problem born of success. Because people now think he's going to win the election, they won't listen to his caution, which is, well, we haven't, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't won this. You know, they'll say, yeah, yeah, whatever. You're like 20 points ahead in the polls. And as a result, the policies of Labour are going to come under much more forensic scrutiny than they have to date. You've already seen the Green Pledge, the Green Prosperity Plan, the £28 billion that Shadow Chancellor Rachel Rees promised at a party conference a couple of years ago, essentially unravel. It was going to be a money spent in the first year on various sort of green projects. Then it was going to be spent over five years. Then it was going to be only if it's consistent with the fiscal rules. Now it's going to be a kind of long-term ambition. And The truth is the fiscal rules don't really allow any space. Right. And as we discussed on a previous show, Jeremy Hunt is going to make sure there is no space left. You know, he is going to spend all the money no. consistent with his fiscal rules. We shouldn't have said it in that podcast, you know, in the autumn, because he heard us and then he did <laughs> we it. We might be flattering ourselves there. <laughs> but the, I think the uh, smart Treasury civil servants would have uh, pointed this out to him and his uh, political advisors would have you as well. Maybe right. But uh, the, um, no, anyway, so, you know, I think all of the Labour shadow cabinet are going to have to get used to suddenly being in the limelight. And I remember that happened to me as Shadow Chancellor. No one cared what I said for the three of the four of the five years I did the job. And then suddenly there was, particularly as I got into the election year, everything we said was put under the microscope, not just by the opposition or the government, I mean, but also by the media. And, you know, you've seen some of it. We discussed this the other day when we were pointing out that how they spend this abolition of the non-DOMs you know, they've got so many different policies that it didn't quite add up. That's going to kind of be a problem for them. Well, we have received a correction, haven't we? We have been corrected by Rachel Reeves herself. Rachel Reeves' um, special advisor, Spencer Thompson, was in touch to point out that um, George was out of date. Some little birdie had given him out-of-date information from within the Conservative machine. And in fact, they had change their approach as the government had changed its budget announcements. And um, so they say, in fact, their sums do add up and they can pay for bought operations and scanners and dentist appointments and um, also breakfast clubs with the non-DOMS money. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's two things here. First of all, what I pointed out was that they're getting £2 billion, they claim, by abolishing non-DOM status. By the way, some people say if you abolish non-DOM status, you're going to drive wealth creation away from the UK. But anyway, let's put that to the side for a moment. If you do raise £2 billion, they were going to spend it on a kind of NHS workforce plan and extra scanners and breakfast clubs and compulsory or supervised rather toothbrushing in schools. Anyway, and they've come back and said, no, well, you know, because the government's done some of these things, we've changed. The government did the workforce plan, so therefore they didn't have to spend it on right. that, so they can so, spend it on something else. This is the danger of opposition, which is that um, the, the in the end, it's the manifesto which matters, not yeah. all this stuff which you do. But, and if you announce a policy and then have to change it, then it becomes messy. So I still think there's a kind of problem, which is, you know, even people like you and me are kind of struggling to keep up with all their pledges. Second... I think they've got this other problem, which is like, who the hell remembers all these individual policies? You know, I do look back to the 97 Labour manifesto. 
And they had really simple ideas that they put on those big colourful posters, which were, you know, we're going to abolish the assisted places scheme for private schools and use that money to cut class sizes in state schools. We're going for to, five, six and seven years. For five, six, you know, I don't remember. That was probably an asterisk. At the no, no, it was in there. Right. Or we're going to, uh, you know, abolish tax relief on private medical insurance and use that to cut NHS waiting lists. Even to this day, more than 25 years on, I mm. can remember those pledges. And I can't get my head around some of these Labour pledges. They're too complicated. They're too bitty. And I remember when I was shadow chief secretary back in the 2005 general election, we had a really complicated plan that I I was basically the only person who managed to kind of hold in my head because I had to because I could be tripped up in an interview if I didn't. And I think they need much simpler, bolder pledges. And I'm not saying that some of these things are bad policies. In fact, Keir Starmer's given a speech today about, you know, why it's very important to deal with childhood tooth decay and it's a big cause of hospital admissions and we should have supervised toothbrushing. And he said, the nanny state's fine. But, you know, is that where you're going to win the British general election on in later this year? I don't think so. It Interesting. A- Do you think the nanny state's a, a problem? Because they were, they are being challenged on this, aren't they? The actual Keir Starmer kind of launch at the beginning of the new year, I think you are right that his success was to give the impression of of calm, serious statesmen, not being flustered, not all over the place. But he actually was talking about um, wanting to relieve the pressure of chaotic government, get government off your back, stop government being in your face all the time. That's slightly contrary to the nanny state idea, because of course, what the nanny state says is the government's telling you what to do, telling you how to run your life, how to how to make your, sure your children are healthy. And I think, you know, I was the children's secretary for three years, and we always walked this tightrope between, on the one hand, talking about things which were important for children and their well-being, but not wanting to do so in a way which sounded like we were giving instructions. Early on, when she was the public health minister, Tessa Jowell was often accused of being a nanny state public health minister. And I think that was something that she, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, you know, thought about quite hard because you don't want to look like you are telling people how to run the intricate details of their own lives. But at the same time, they highlight an important point, Uh which is if children don't brush their teeth, that's really bad. Well, it was actually a question being thrown today at Wes Streeting, wasn't it, on the radio? You don't mind the idea of, of, of the nanny state being used to describe your actions? Look, I think there's going to be worse name calling than this in the run up to the general election. If the Conservatives think they're going to win by slinging mud and people will forget 14 years of misery, failure and grotesque incompetence, they've got another thing coming. That's the fight we're up for. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty pugnacious, Wes. Pug- it was a very good interview, but honestly... I don't think West Streeting will want to be thought of as a nanny state health secretary. But and the idea of boasting, well, you know, if the nanny state's good, then we'll do it. I'm not sure if that's how we'd want to position things. We should, we should move on in a moment. But I just want to ask you this question. There's got a lot of talk that Labour should be offering a tax cut as well, you know, before the general election, that was part of the manifesto, that, you know, it's quite important not to allow the Conservatives to open up what they would call clear blue water with a tax-cutting promise going into the election. And you, you pointed out, I think, in one of our earlier episodes that Gordon Brown in government, obviously it's different, was able to cut taxes before the 2001 election. What would you be saying to Labour about making promises on tax cuts before the election? Well, in the run-up to 1997, we did promise a tax cut. We said we would have a, a new, lower 10p starting rate of income tax, which would be paid for by abolishing private medical 
insurance tax relief. And um, it was announced, I think, at the Labour Party conference of 1996. And I don't think you want to look like, as a political party, if you're Labour, that you are against cutting taxes. And if you could, as Rachel Reeves has said, if you can reduce the tax burden on working people, um, that's a good thing to aspire to because we have the highest level of taxes for a very long time and a huge rise in taxes in this parliament. The tension is if that moves from, of course we'd like to cut taxes if we can, or targeted tax cuts to help people in um, under pressure into we can reduce the nation's tax burden for the future, because I think that is a is a much bigger the, the promise and much, not, much diff- more difficult to deliver. That 10p rate, which actually ultimately caused a hell of a problem for Gordon Brown many years later, didn't it? But, Ten years later, yeah. yeah but, um, it was quite popular at the time. But it wasn't one of the big new Labour pledges. It wasn't one of the five pledges. It wasn't one of the five um, pledges, no. I think we may have had, but it was in the manifesto. It was a tax cut. It meant if anybody could say, you want to raise taxes, you could say, look, we want to introduce a new lower starting rate of income tax. So you, in an interview, it was a pushback against the accusation, but that isn't the same as um, saying we, you know, our priority is to cut taxes because at the moment that's going to be very, very hard to deliver. Anyway, we're going to be coming back to this a lot between now and November the 14th. Of course, Britain is not the only country voting in 2024. It's the year of elections around the world. Uh, the big US elections are later this year and the Iowa caucus kicks off all of that next week, which will be pretty interesting. And we have another very interesting election happening this weekend on the island of Taiwan. And we'll be talking about that next. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we got the Taiwanese elections this weekend. Now, of course, if you're in Taiwan, the elections are all about the cost of living, the economy, living in Taipei, which has become very expensive. The low birth rate is a big issue in Taiwanese politics. And you've got a contest between the incumbents, which is a party called the DPP, and their candidate, who's called William Lai, and the opposition, which is the Kuomintang, which those who did history at some point in their life, quite remember, was the other party in the Chinese Civil War against the communists. The rest of the world sees it really, though, as an election about relations with China, about whether Taiwan's going to move towards a declaration of independence, which is seen as unbelievably provocative towards China, and something that people in America, uh, particularly, but elsewhere, have been encouraging the Taiwanese towards. Or is it going to be more about trying to find a rapprochement with China and reduce tensions in China? So the rest of the world is interested in this election because it's all about relations with China. But from what I understand it, the Taiwanese people are mainly talking about domestic issues like we would in our election. And when I went to Taiwan last year for the very first time in my life, because my daughter was studying there, what struck me is I didn't feel like I was turning up at kind of Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin in 
one or something, or that I was, you know, on the North Korea, South Korea demilitarized. This, you know, it's it's a very, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, suburban, peaceful place. And you have no sense when you're there that you are in the kind of epicenter of the geopolitical fault lines. There's no sign of kind of big tension. There aren't soldiers on the streets. There aren't air raid sirens that you're hearing or anything like that. You know, it's like a nice afternoon in Guildford, <laughs> not rather than, you know, on the front line of uh, the next war with China. I think it's kind of interesting, that sort of disconnect, particularly having been there, between what it feels like being there and how the rest of the world is obviously talking about it. I mean, if the DPP, the more kind of Taiwanese nationalist party, were to to win again in this election, be the first time that they've won three elections on the trot since democracy began in the 90s in Taiwan. And that is seen, as you said, as very provocative for um, President Xi. He actually, in his New Year message, talked about the historical inevitability of Taiwan coming back into the Chinese fold. But does he really want you know, a conflict in the um, South China Sea in which America would inevitably become embroiled. I mean, at such a dangerous time for the world, you know, a new third front as well as Europe and the Middle East. I mean, is that really his aim? I would think for the Americans as well, it's a complete nightmare to have a provocation. The interesting thing, though, is that um, the rather more sort of pro-Chinese party has been doing less well in the polls. And for the reasons that you said, which is that young people who are more concerned about, you know, living a modern, open cultural life, much less inclined these days to vote for the more Chinese orientated party, the KMT. And they're actually more inclined to vote for the DPP, the Nationalist Party, but actually there's a third candidate, Ko Wei-jen, who's actually been doing really well amongst young people. I think that there is a link. The to Nick Ch- Clegg of Taiwan. The Nick Clegg of Taiwan. But there is a link here to domestic Taiwanese politics and China, which is that after what happened in Hong Kong, the idea that the kind of closer links with China that KMT would talk about, the, the idea that you might be brought back into the fold, I would think that compared to five or ten years ago, that is now a much more threatening thing for young Taiwanese people because, you know, nobody looks at what's happened in Hong Kong and think that's happened in a way which has been, you know, open or liberal or respecting of the new life young people want to lead. So you can see why older people may want to vote for that old, rather more Chinese party, but not young people. Well, there's also a kind of paradox, which is the world is getting more and more interested in the Taiwanese problem and the uh, relationship with China and the risks that you know it might lead to a major war there, whereas the actual people of Taiwan are sort of drifting away from that interest in China, and democracy is in fact relatively new in Taiwan, it's, as you pointed out, only since the 1990s. And some of the old statues of Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader who led his defeated army in the Chinese Civil War to the island of Taiwan, they're all coming down. And the kind of big posters of him are coming down. And it's it's becoming more of a kind of liberal Asian democracy, somewhat detached from this big question about its relationship with China. So it's a kind of quite a paradox. But for the rest of the world, as you point out, you know, this is this is very important because if this did lead to another conflagration, and let's be clear, China cannot accept Taiwanese independence. It's absolutely kind of fundamental to how they think about the world. 
if it does lead to a declaration of independence, if it leads to conflict, then you know we are into an absolutely horrific conflict. And not easy for the rest of the world to deal with, including the Americans, but also, as you point out, an enormous risk for the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party, and the Chinese president. At a time when their military has been kind of well, the, the interesting in thing, real trouble. And the interesting thing about the Chinese army is it's not really been deployed in a conflict since the Vietnam War. A whole it's bunch the, of generals got sacked over the over Christmas and the New Year. It's not a it's not an army that's been sent as the British Army has or the American Army to kind of conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. This is not an army that's been used in an aggressive way. And as you know, I'm no general or anything, so this is a bit of an armchair observation. But you know, the a seaborne invasion of a defended island a hundred miles offshore is about the most difficult thing you can do and the most risky thing. So I am more optimistic that there will be a kind of way of managing this crisis over the coming years. And I think, you know, if you want to be a bit more optimistic, remember the last year ended with the Chinese president visiting San Francisco to talk to the American president. And so relations are being managed in the really important global relationship, which is the one between the superpower of the United States and the emerging superpower of China. I think one interesting thing this year, though, to watch out for is um, we're now members of this um, Asian economic area. Britain kind of slightly strangely is a member of this CPTPP economic alliance. China. So it's supposed to be a Brexit bonus, Ed. The Brexit bonus. Um, in Parliament, we were told another Brexit bonus is that there are clams now at the bottom of the Thames, we've discovered, which apparently wouldn't exist if we were still in the EU. So returning to the first Brexit bonus of the CPTPP, Taiwan is applying to join. And this kind of interesting question, because the Chinese would hate it if um, Taiwan was to join. But we're now a member, so we'll have to decide what we think. Now, if you were Australia and New Zealand, do you really want to rock the boat with China? But if you're Kemi Badnock, the business trade minister, supporting Taiwan joining the CPTPP, be quite popular amongst those rather hardline Tory backbenchers. Who it's want become it. kind of conservative cause, actually. Conservative MPs have been visiting Taiwan. And it's an interesting... Though, in but I think actually for Labour as well, though, if you think from, from a Labour point of view, when Rachel Reeves talks about securonomics, wanting to have you know trade relations, which mean that we aren't being exploited or given a hard time, and Taiwan now has a huge share of the high-end semiconductor market, them being part of this economic alliance and therefore having to conform to standards and regulations. You can see why, from an economic point of view, Taiwan being a member would be quite a good thing. You could actually have Conservatives and Labour agreeing on this, right. but the geopolitics of it is much, much more difficult. It's very interesting. We should definitely, at some point of this year, look at Labour's foreign policy. Because I think people have assumed that there's got a growing hostility to China inside the Conservative Party, and there's something called the China Research Group. And so, but you know, if you actually had a Labour government, some of the human rights issues in China would be very hard for a Labour government to, you know, manage within the Labour movement. So anyway, we, I think Labour Party relations with China is something we should definitely come back to. Or anyway, what we're just saying, take a look at this Taiwanese election. It may not be on your radar, but it could be very important for the world. Definitely. So as we said at the beginning, we are having a new edition of our podcast dropping in your feeds on Monday morning, EMQs, Ex-Minister's Questions. And we've had loads and loads of questions come in and we're going to be answering them. Just to give you a little bit of a tease, could you explain why special advisors like Dominic Cummings can be so influential in politics and the government? Now, I'm um, not suggesting we answer this now. That's for our EMQ edition. But It's a bit like that movie Fatal Attraction. 
just when you think Dominic Cummings is dead, he comes out of the bath and <laughs> stabs you. Because, <laughs> you know, it turns out Rishi Sunak's been consulting him. So anyway, we'll be talking about that. Definitely. And then uh, we've also had a, uh, we've had a great question from a Mr. Ed Ball. Yep. Is he a real person? A singular individual. Um, I, I believe you'll find. Uh, they used to say, um, you know, two heads are better than one. Well, two, we, two balls are definitely better than the one. Two, yeah. We, we disproved that two heads are better than one in the 2015 election. It turned out that the nation didn't agree with us. But he actually um, he sent a, a message on Twitter praising our Inside the Room Coalition Talks episode. And I uh, retweeted it. And he sent us a question about that, which we're going to be answering in our edition. But he also sent me a direct message which said, Hi, Ed. Thanks for the follow. I must thank you, to be honest. 12 years ago, when I was interviewing for my teacher training, I would always introduce myself as Ed Ball, not to be confused with the former Secretary of State for Education. Always got a good laugh and eased the nerves. Keep up the good work. So um, so we definitely we're going to have one listener when we do EMQs. We are. His, um, his Twitter name is at Eddie Ball. Oh, is there an Eddie Ball day? There is not an Eddie Ball day, I don't think. But I mean... <laughs> It could start now. Anyway, we are going to be answering his his question, which has nothing to do with anything we're talking about here, in our EMQ special edition. And uh, don't forget that you can always send us in your questions, still time, um, to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. We love reading these questions. We're going to have more time to answer them. That's our New Year's resolution. And make sure you click follow on your app, uh, whether you're listening to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast make sure you hit follow so that new episodes land in your podcast feed your podcast feed what is that what does it mean i don't know do you know told us to say i know do you, do you have one i'm not sure if i do <laughs> well i've only just started following us but does anyway. it mean you go out for lunch after after you've recorded i do actually <laughs> all right so time for a podcast feed we look forward to you joining us on monday Paul. monday in your podcast feed see you then Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.